Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for Chris and the music team. They do a phenomenal job leading us to the throne room of God every Sunday. And I hope you take the time to thank them, because it is a lot of work. I know they don't do it just for your praise. They do it to the glory of God. But we have a phenomenal music team. So thank you so much. Chris is an answer to prayer for me personally. I also want to thank you as a church. Uh, this is my first time having the opportunity to stand in this pulpit as a staff member. Uh, yeah, it's a little scary. I mean, you had months to get rid of us. Months. You could have kicked us out the door. You didn't. And now you're stuck with me, so I'm sorry. You have been so loving and gracious, praying for us, supporting us as we have transitioned off of the mission field, gotten medical care for my wife. We just had a great appointment a couple weeks ago at MD Anderson and uh, with her pain doctor and got a great report. So thank you so much for your prayers, for her health, for our just kind of getting established here. You've been very gracious to us. I almost feel like, you know, it's where they're like, okay, stop giving. We have enough. Keep, you know, you guys have just been over the top. So thank you. Uh, we have experienced your love in so many ways. Well, we live in a world filled with conflict, don't we? In fact, I was uh, looking on the internet this morning just trying to find one example of conflict. Just one. I mean, it's almost like you don't want to watch the news anymore. You know, bombs going off or explosions in New York and wars and talks of wars and abuse and violence. And we haven't even gotten to our home. Four daughters and a wife. Limited amount of clothing. Yeah, you know where I'm going. Conflict is everywhere. I don't need to convince you of that, do I? We are surrounded by conflict. In fact, it was interesting. As a, as a missionary, we got to see a lot of interesting things in the country of Albania where we served. A few years ago, I actually got to witness my first street fight. Uh, I was not in it, just so you know. As a missionary, we try to stay out of street fights in general. Uh, you know, and as a police officer in Los Angeles, I had uh, been involved sometimes starting conflict, sometimes ending it. Uh, so again, this was nothing new to me personally, but it was amazing. I'm on my moped driving to a meeting, and there is a gentleman on his cell phone walking across the street, and a car trying to drive down this one-way street. Well, that, that sounds normal. Here in America, what would the car do? Stop because the pedestrian has the right of way. You know when you travel outside of the borders of the United States, that's generally not true, right? The pedestrian, they have a nickname, roadkill. And that driver is doing everything he or she can to get where they're going, and it doesn't matter if you are in the road or in the way or not, your new name is Splat. Well, this guy's just sauntering along, talking on his cell phone, walking across this little street. This driver is furious. I mean, I can see him. I'm in, again, I'm in my moped just watching this. So he decides to encourage this pedestrian along his way. See, they have this thing called a bumper, and he literally 
bumped the pedestrian. Just, you know, and give him a little gentle love tap. Hey, why don't you move it along there, buddy? My street. Well, of course, what does the pedestrian do? Again, he didn't put the phone down the whole time. He's still on the phone. He turns, looks at the guy, and goes, bam, right on the hood of the car. And I'm like, whoa. So what does the driver do? What would you expect a male, young Albanian driver to do? Gets out of the car. They start yelling and screaming. I mean, I can see the spittle flying. You know, because that's always a good way to resolve conflict, isn't it? Start screaming at each other. Traffic is stopped. The whole neighborhood is coming out to find out what's going on. Does the conflict get resolved? No. The driver walks back to his car, reaches under his seat, and I'm going, okay, I've, I've been a part of this. I know what's coming next. He pulls out a switchblade. And he does one of those little, like a ninja. He didn't do that part. That was me embellishing. But he does a little, and he starts walking toward the guy doing this. You know, peace and harmony just in his heart, I could tell. So he's waving this thing at the guy, and the guy's still on the phone. I'm like, put the phone down. Hold on a second. So he's yelling at the guy, and they're yelling. There's a knife there. I'm thinking, what in the world? I thought I was going to witness my first murder in Tirana. Now, why did the driver want to stab the man who slammed his hand on the hood of his car? Did it hurt his car? No. But what did it hurt? His pride. He was willing to go to jail over it. They had a major conflict. Thankfully, the police rushed in eventually and kept them from killing each other. And then finally, I got to drive my moped on to my meeting. Let me define what conflict is for us. Conflict. And again, according to the dictionary, conflict is, and I quote, struggle resulting from incompatible or opposing needs. And I would even add opposing desires. You know, oftentimes we as Christians use the term need, and when we say, I need, anyone have kids? Yeah? They have lots of needs, don't they? Lots of needs. Have you ever thought about the distinction between a need and a desire? What's the difference between a need and a desire? Because again, 1 Timothy 6, 8, Paul says this, and if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. See, this is the difference. A need is something that you absolutely have to have to survive. Food, shelter, clothing, and occasionally more shoes. Oh, wait, how'd that get in there? Food, shelter, clothing, essentials. Do we need those to survive? Absolutely. And aren't you thankful people are wearing clothes this morning? Yes. But what happens is in our heart, a desire becomes a need. So what's a desire? Anything else we want. We don't necessarily need it. We don't have to have it to survive. So this morning, you cannot say, I need an iPhone 7. Whoa, hold on, Chris. I need an iPhone 7. 
It's going to change and revolutionize my life. Earbuds with no wires. You're like, earbuds, what? what He's talking another language. It's a generational thing. Do you need a new iPhone? Sometimes it feels like you need a new iPhone 7, but you don't need it unless you figured out a way to eat it and digest it or wear it as a hat. So just a simple definition. Conflict is the struggle resulting from opposing desires. It's that struggle that comes when we have different desires. So let me ask you a question. Is conflict in and of itself sinful? Is it sinful? Allow me to illustrate. We're already starting to think about lunch. Thanks, Chris, for bringing it up. I want to go to McKinsey's. In fact, Ken Ramey talked me into getting this jalapeno bun with jalapeno bacon and a, and a hamburger and cheese. And are you getting hungry yet? It was phenomenal. I want to go to McKinsey's. You want to go to Whataburger. For the life of me, I don't know why, but that's what you want to do. Now, based on what I've told you so far, has sin occurred? Just on the information I've given you. Have you sinned? You want to go to Waterbury. Have I sinned? I want to go to McKinsey's. I see some of you going, no. Based on what I've told you so far, there's no sin yet. Because that's the challenge I mean, right now, we simply have different desires, different opinions, different preferences. Now, while conflict itself is not sinful, it's how we respond to conflict that gets us into trouble, that often will lead to sin. So, how does conflict create an opportunity to sin? Well, it ultimately comes down to pride. Pride. Pride is the mindset that focuses on self And even the service of self, me first, pride replaces a high and holy view of God with a high and exalted view of oneself. In fact, Stuart Scott states, pride is, and I quote, a pursuit of self-recognition, self-exaltation, and a desire to control and use all things for self. Are you seeing a pattern? It's all about me. I'm first. What I want comes first. I'm more important than you. It's pride. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 13.4, it's the opposite of love, isn't it? Because love is not, what? Arrogant. It's not proud. Does it surprise us that it's one of the seven things that God hates in Proverbs 6.17? God hates it. Why does God hate Pride, because pride results in self-idolatry, where I begin to love the things that I want that are going to make me happy, they're going to satisfy my desires even more than God Himself. And how does God feel about it when His children replace love of God with love of something else? Is He for it or against it? What do you think? 
I mean, you turn to the Old Testament, the ground is opening up and swallowing people. There's serpents coming in and biting people. People are writhing and dying and hail from heaven, and God hates it. He's against it. Self-idolatry. And again, while the evidence of prideful response to conflict is often first observed externally through one's actions and words, we know pride begins where? In the heart, in the mind. We know that. For example, the opening story that I told you about the driver and the pedestrian, the guy who couldn't get off the phone, the conflict began when they both felt that they each had the right to go first. The pedestrian's going, the driver's going, me first, me first. Well, you can't physically be in the same place at the same time. I know that because the guy put his bumper against the guy's knee. It doesn't work. Their belief that they were more important than anyone else on the road drove them to aggressively argue for their supposed rights. I was here first. No, I was here. I'm a pedestrian. No, I'm a driver of a car. I'm bigger than you. I have ninja skills. Kids love me. Adults, not, not so much. Didn't matter, 20 other cars were waiting and one moped. <laughs> they were the most important thing, and they wanted to be first. Their conflict almost ended with a physical attack and might have ended in murder. Again, we tend to focus on the external actions involving a conflict, kids fighting over a toy. You know, my daughters, it's kind of like a, like a, a lioness pit. You know, you take a new shirt, and you're just like, here, girls. You're like, oh, I want to wear it, I want to wear it. My husband won't wash the dishes. What's up with that? Come on, buddy. You ate it. You clean it up. I'm a man. I'm a Texan. I don't do dishes. <laughs> Does that cause conflict? Yeah. But the internal characteristic of pride is the motivating force which is revealed through the external conflict. So you can think of it this way. Pride on the inside motivates us to sin on the outside. Pride on the inside motivates us to demand what we want. Me first. So we're going to McKinsey's for lunch. I'm sorry. You're wrong. I'm right. Well, how can we avoid responding to conflict in a prideful way? What is the cure for conflict? You can turn with me to James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we're going to find two ways to handle conflict. Two ways to handle conflict. And as you're turning there, on your handout, I actually provided a little bit of the context. Again, the book of James offers one of the most clear and practical passages dealing with this topic, this idea of how to resolve conflict. And just like today, the early church was filled with Believers who struggled to get along. Believers who struggled to apply the truth that was being passed down to them. And so here, beginning in James 4, James writes to these Jewish Christians, focusing on some of the conflicts and attitudes found within the community of believers. And this passage gives us great hope that every believer should be able to find peace and solutions to conflict if they do it God's way. So James provides us a wrong way and a right way 
Let's look at the wrong way first to handle conflict. The wrong way. James chapter 4. Let me just read the beginning of verse 1. James asks, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He starts off with this question. He wants his readers to consider that. He's basically saying, Why do you fight? Why can't you get along? He uses these terms, quarrels and conflicts. Again, these are two military terms to describe conflict. When he talks about a quarrel, he's talking about the major war, the major battle. I mean, you remember the story of the Hatfields and the McCoys? Remember that story? That was multi-generational. It was a quarrel that lasted generations. James also uses the term conflicts. This is the term for the individual, the small battle that took place within the war. Again, there is some speculation over what started this quarrel between the Hatfields and the McCoys, but you realize it was, many argue it was a dispute over a hog. A dispute over a hog. Bacon. We're fighting over bacon. That lasted generations. So where do these major and minor battles come from? Well, James is going to answer his own question. Follow along as I read the rest of verse 1 and 2. He says, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here, James lists for us three sources of conflict, and I have them listed on your handout. Three sources of conflict. The first source of conflict is uncontrolled desire. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Your pleasure? This is the pursuit of self-centered pleasure, which drives a person to the point that there is a war within his own body. He's fighting within his own body to do whatever it takes to satisfy the desire for pleasure. He says that they, they wage war in your members. This word member refers to both the physical and the mental desires that drive a person to do whatever it takes to satisfy what they want. I don't care what it's going to cost me. I don't care who it's going to hurt. I want it to be happy. I need it. Therefore, I will do whatever it takes to get it. It's an uncontrolled desire. He gives us a second source of conflict. It's unfulfilled desire. Unfulfilled desire. It's lust. He says, you lust in verse 2. You do not have, so you commit murder. Lust, wanting what they can't have to the point of murdering to get it. And again, here's the connection between the desires of the mind and one's actions. I mean, you just don't wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'm going to go murder Susie Q. It's a process, almost a habituation of the way a person thinks of themselves and what they want, or anger, or revenge, or you just fill in the blank. There's a connection between the mind and the action. In fact, John MacArthur says this, marital conflicts, family conflicts, job conflicts, national conflicts, all these are the result of unsatisfied personal lust and envying. Uncontrolled desire, unfulfilled desire. There's a third, selfish desire. 
selfish desire. Notice what he says. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's envy, coveting what someone else has, something that they can't get. Someone else has a nicer car or better hair or a better job or a prettier wife, all of which can easily become objects of selfish desire. You just fill in the blank. A husband who actually washes dishes. There's a novelty. And when they can't obtain these things, James tells us they fight and they quarrel. Now, how many times do you see the word you in these first two verses? How many times? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You, 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 me, me, me. It's all about me. It's a song I wrote to myself because I love myself. Why wouldn't I sing a song about myself? Because it's all about me. You get it? Self. Now let's look at this passage in a more visual way. Because if you're like me, maybe you learn visually. I'm a visual learner. That's why it took me to learn a foreign language in seven years. I'm grateful to Stuart Scott for this illustration. And hopefully we're going to get this up up on the board. The wrong way. Again, there's a military image in this passage. So what you see here is a tent up on the screen. The tent represents what's in our heart. What you want, what you desire, what you believe, it's all in that tent. And in that tent, there's desires. And again, these may even start out as good desires, good things, things that God blesses us with. But they will become sinful if we demand them if we have to have them, if we fight over them. And again, these desires might be riches, sex, food, possessions, relaxation, comfort, entertainment, enjoyable experiences, respect, recognition. I mean, you just fill in the blank. It may be different for each one of us. Listen to some of these examples. I expected to get promoted at work by now. I haven't. What potentially would come out of that kind of an attitude? Bitterness, anger, frustration, criticism. How about this one? I don't get the respect I deserve from my wife. She needs to respect me. How about this one? It was my right. In fact, kids use that a lot, don't they? Come on, you can't take the car away. I have somewhere to go. Again, what's the subtle, (laughs) it's my right. I planned it. No, no, this isn't your right. This is a what, parents? Come on, say it like you mean it. This is a privilege. This isn't your right. Sorry, kids, I'm picking on you. I'm coming after you this morning. How about this one? You don't love me the way I deserve to be loved. Or how about this one? I desire to spend money however I want. It's my money. I can spend it what I want. Just like a person will drive tent pegs down to secure a tent. For those of us that have been camping 
or seen pictures of people who have been camping. So too will the tent pegs of desire for pleasure and lust and envy be driven down in a person's heart in order to obtain the desires of his or her heart. And when desires become rooted in our life, when the tent pegs are driven in, they become lusts. And again, remember, what's the distinction between a need and a want? A need is what? You didn't know I was going to quiz you. What's a need? Food, clothing, shelter. A desire is anything else that you might desire or want. You don't need it to survive. Now, this is the idea of jealously desiring something which you don't get. It's a desire that begins to rule over your passions, your wants, your expectations. It can begin to dominate your thoughts and build to the point where you spend time thinking up ways to get it regardless of the cost or the consequence. Now, the question that normally comes up in our minds at this point is, well, how do I know if the tent pigs have been driven in? How do I know if these desires or maybe even needs have become idols of my heart, entrenched lusts? Well, when we're willing to sin to get it, did you catch that? You're willing to sin to get it, or you're willing to sin if you don't get it. I've been praying for healing for years, and God says, no, 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 no. How do you respond when God says no? Because if it's sinful, then it's possible even a good desire, a desire to get healed, can become an idol of your heart where you begin to put your hope in that as opposed to the one who is the great physician. What are you willing to do to get it? Or what do you do when you don't get it? And again, often, when we think or say, I need, this word need can become a lust that becomes almost a sinful stronghold. We say, I must have, or I expect, or I have my rights, or I deserve And again, I'm not saying every time you say, I need, that it's sinful. Sometimes you honestly need a new dress. Amen, ladies? I need a new dress. It's not always sinful. But again, what's the motive that's driving it? That's going to help. So we have this tent, and we have the desires, your desires and their desires, but ultimately, the foundation of these desires is pride. It's pride, and you see the visual here. Pride becomes the foundation of the tent of our hearts. It's my demands, my reputation, my rights, my desires, my needs, my expectations. And again, who am I focused on? Am I focused on God? Am I even mentioning you? No, I'm thinking of me, what I want, what I need, what I desire. Because that is pride, it's self and if the other person, be it your wife, be it your child or your parent, your friend, your boss, a co-worker, the police officer who stops you on the way to work, that's not fun. Whoever it may be, 
if they put the ten pegs down on their demands, their reputation, their rights, their expectations, then you have a war. You're willing to fight to get what you want. They're willing to fight to get what they want. And what do you have? Dynamite. And sometimes it goes off right away. Sometimes it simmers over years. But we get conflict. And again, it's not just argument. It's not just threats. Sometimes you will even have real violence. See, when conflict is not resolved biblically, properly, because of pride, it drives a person to fight to get what they want. And the result is what we see all over the world today, the violence and the domestic abuse, drunk driving. You realize drunk driving at its heart is pride. person drinks too much, and rather than, than getting help or a taxi or whatever, what do they do? I'm just going to get in the car. I'm going to take care of myself. They're an endanger to themselves. They're an endanger to others. They're an endanger to the woodland creek. I mean, everything. They're just a danger to everything. But they're going to do it. Even something like drunk driving. Pride. Bullying. It's something that's happening more and more. We hear more and more. The school system. Kids bullying each other. Rape. War. Verbal abuse. And on and on and on it goes. Again, all of these external actions are the direct result of self-centered pride. And again, I can't say this enough, even good desires can turn into lusts if we are unwilling to give them up. If we fight for them, even good things, good desires, things that God's blessed you with, blessed me with, can become a lust. And of course, what is the result of these uncontrolled, unfulfilled, selfish desires? James says, we murder, we fight, and we quarrel. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, Chris, I am no murderer. I'm not a murderer. Okay, occasionally I get frustrated. Okay, when we say frustrated, what do we really mean? Come on, help me out. What do we mean when we say, I'm just frustrated? Just call it anger. Usually that's what it is. And it's either righteous anger or unrighteous anger. I'm no murderer, really. According to Matthew 5, 21 to 22, if you get angry in your heart toward your brother, you're equally guilty of murder. Remember the words of Christ? The Pharisees were so righteous on the outside and Christ brings it right to their heart. In Matthew 5, 21, he says this, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, frustrated, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Christ could not have been more clear. If you get angry in your heart, in God's eyes, it's the same as murder. You know, you ever met someone with angry eyebrows? Well, you'd know it if you saw them. You're like, did I do something to offend you? Those eyebrows are like, ah! I mean, even non-verbally, we can kill people. We don't even need to use our words. Our words, our tone of voice, our body language, even the timing of our discussions, sometimes we commit murder. 
Again, 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. What is John talking about? If you ever murder someone in your heart, you're not going to heaven? Is that what he's saying? No. He's saying if you practice this in your life, if your life is characterized with anger, then you're going to hell. Because an angry person has not received the free gift of salvation that sets us free from the sin and the controlling sin of anger. So remember, what is the foundation for our lusts, for our sinful desires, for our expectations? It's pride. It's the mindset of self. When the tent pegs of desire go in, our jealous desires drive us to battle, which ultimately resolves in conflict. So how does God respond to all of the sinful fighting and unresolved conflict that we create? Notice what it says at the end of verse 6, back in James 4. God is opposed to the proud. Did you hear that? God is opposed to the proud. Does that sound like a good thing to you? Does that sound like, hey, sign me up. I want to be a part of that. Let's oppose God. When we are in a mindset of pride, James tells us God is opposed to us. And again, this word opposed, it's another military term that James is using, depicting a full army ready for battle. The picture is of God in full battle armor against the proud. Reminds me of the story I heard of a very successful, proud ant walking along the railroad track of life. Life is good. He's kind of strutting along. I guess this is how ants strut. I'm not sure. He's strutting along, living life. It's all about me, my way. It's my highway. And in the distance, he sees this light and hears this noise. And right as he's about to say, hey, this is my... Death, dismemberment. Did the ant ever have a hope or a prayer of succeeding against the train that was opposing him? No. And yet, you and I do it every day when we respond in pride because God is opposed to us in the same way that train just destroyed. I mean, what hope do we have in fighting God Think about that. Now, why is this? Because pride is the basic sin from which so many others flow, isn't it? Let me illustrate this for us. Lust. Lust. I want it regardless of what God wants or is best or how it affects others. Do you hear pride in that? Absolutely. It's about me. It's about what I want. How about murder? I want to kill to fulfill my anger or to satisfy my desire. I went into a grocery store. I wanted money. The cashier was in my way, so I took their life. Pride. How about lying? 
<laughs> now you're messing, Chris. Think about it, lying. Deceit enables me to get what I want or avoid problems. I mean, think about it. Why do we lie? Because it's fun? And then we lie to get out of a, another lie because that's always a good idea. It went so well the first time, you know, we're going to try to fix it by doing it a second time. We lie to get out of problems. We lie to avoid confrontation or to, to deceive, to get what we want. It's pride. How about laziness? I don't want to work because I'd rather do something else. I know I'm required to do this. I don't want to do that. I want to do this. How about talking back to parents, kids? Here it comes. You ever talk back to your parents? Don't lie to me. I used to be a cop. I can tell. You ever talk back to your parents? <laughs> My kid's going, no. <laughs> I saw that, Sierra. You think I don't see, but I do. Talking back to parents. I am more important than my parents. I am more important than even God who tells me to respect my parents. Therefore, I will not respect them. Because I have a voice, and I've been wronged, and I'm right, and I want to tell it to you. Even talking back to parents. We could go on and on and on. Now, while pride may not always be externally visible to others, God sees it. And he actively opposes it. Terrifying verse, Hebrews 4.13. Terrifying if you're on the wrong side of this conflict. Remember what Hebrews 4.13 says? There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things open and laid bare before God. He doesn't just see what you and I do in our quiet moments. He sees the heart. He sees the motive. What drove you to do or say or think what you did. And he knows whether it was proud or whether it was founded in humility. And if it was a proud response, what is James telling us is God's response. He's opposed there's a line down, and God's over there, and you're over here. What does that make you and me? If God is opposed to us, what definition do we now take on ourselves? Enemy. Enemy. He's opposed. Why is that? Because in their mindset of pride, they aren't concerned with God. They're not concerned with His ways. They have a better way. Their way makes more sense. God is too restrictive. This, this Bible is too outdated. It doesn't speak to me. It's not relevant. They come up with all kinds of reasons. They're not concerned with loving, obeying, fearing God. For the believer, not only will God withhold his blessing, and I'm just thinking of James 1, the effective doer shall be blessed in what he or she does. Again, if you're not doing what God says, if you're responding in pride, what is God going to do? He's not going to bless you. So not only are, is God withholding blessing if you respond as a believer in pride, but we also know from Hebrews 12, what is God going to do with the son or daughter that actively rebels against him as a believer? In fact, to show his love, what is God going to do? Big stick. Sometimes that's what it takes. He's going to discipline us. 
Again, Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the treacherous is hard. Sometimes in counseling, we use this verse to say, look, you, I'm warning you, I'm pleading with you. If you continue on this path with the decisions you are making, if you continue to put yourself first and reject God and stiff arm Him and His Word and the gospel and Christ, then the Bible is promising that your way is going to get harder. Your life is going to be more and more difficult and the hope and the satisfaction and the contentment and joy that you hope the world is going to give you, it's only going to get worse. And I love you too much not to tell you. Turn back. Return to the Lord. This is why unrepentant, proud people are often plagued with difficulties, family and work. Again, when I was a cop in Los Angeles, I worked a beat where we were up on Moholan Drive where all the rich and famous and the stars and you know, so one, one day I'm over at uh, Denzel Washington's house. The next day I'm doing a burglar alarm at Madonna's house. And I got to meet some of these people. And you would think these are the rich and famous, the people that if anybody should be happy in life, it should be them. And more often than not, these are the people who are the most proud, stiff-arming God. And many of them are miserable. It doesn't matter how much fame they have or money or respect I mean, you could almost say their love tank is super, super, super full. They have everything they want. They're miserable. Because God is opposed to the proud. You get the point? Is it clear? This is not a path that you or I want to be on. And James has shown us this first wrong way to handle conflict. But let's look at the second way. Thankfully, there is a second way, and it is the right way. Look at the last part there of verse 6, James 4. While God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In contrast, while he's opposed to the proud, he gives grace to the humble. See, you and I cannot biblically resolve conflict if we don't have the mindset of Christ a humble servant. Again, Mark 10, 45, what does it say? Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And to what extent did Christ serve? To death. Because the verse ends with, how did he serve? To give his life as a ransom for many. He served to death, literally. We have to repent of our pride, acknowledge it before God, and cry out for forgiveness. Take it off, put it off, and replace it with humility, with the attitude of Christ. To have humility, we have to lower our view of ourselves. You know what? Maybe I'm not the most important person in this house, in this office, on this road, in this church. Maybe I'm not the most important person that I thought I was. To exalt God, God, you are worthy, and you are worth it, and I'm going to do what you say and to elevate others. You know, there's that thing where God is first and I'm second. Maybe you've heard of that. I actually think there's a better way to communicate that because God is first, you are second. What does that make me? I'm going to start a new movement. I'm third. God's first, you're second, and guess what? Chris is third. And what a great place to be last. I'm 
putting your needs, your desires above my own. Again, Stuart Scott defines this humility as the mindset of Christ. He says it's a servant's mindset. A servant. Maybe I need to start doing the dishes. That's what a servant would do. My wife is asking me to help. My sister wants to borrow my blouse. Maybe I'll let her do it. My boss has asked me to do his work. That's, it's not my responsibility, but I'm going to be a servant. My teacher's unreasonable, but I'm going to be like Christ. Stuart Scott continues, he says, the focus on God and others, a pursuit of the recognition and the exaltation of God and a desire to glorify and please God in all things and by all things He has given. I love that. He says it's a pursuit of the recognition and exaltation of God. When people get to know you and they get involved in your life, do they immediately see Christ? Because you are so in love with Jesus that it oozes. It's not like you're trying. It just happens naturally because you're thinking like Christ and you're speaking like Christ and you're acting like Christ. And so God is exalted when people are like, I don't know what drug you're on, but I want it. Are you on an all-veggie diet or are you juicing? What is this I'm seeing? I love the Lord and I want to be like Him. And that humility, it comes out in a way where people are like, man, I don't know what this guy's on, what this woman is on, but they are different. And they just care about others and they're kind and they're patient and they serve And when people come to find out what it is, it exalts God because what can you do but point to Him and point to the cross? Because guess what? I wasn't like this. I was that proud aunt saying, God, my way. But God graciously opened my ears to hear the truth of the gospel that He sent His Son to die on a cross for my sins that anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ alone as Lord and Savior, would have eternal life. And in that moment when I did that at 17 years, God changed me. And I had a humility in my life that I had never had up until that point. Before then, it was all external. I was the best Pharisee growing up at Grace Community in Los Angeles, being taught the Word of God. I was quoting, spurting forth Scripture. I knew the Bible. But I wasn't humble, because that is a work that only God can do. Amen? Are you humble? Think about all of the conflict in your life that would be resolved if we were more humble like Christ in putting God first and others second. To love God first and love others second. Be amazing. What does it mean to be humble according to James? How do we resolve conflict with humility? Well, it should happen is that our humble servant mindset should drive us to graciously and clearly communicate those desires to one another. So you see up on the screen, instead of fighting and demanding with tent pegs driven into my heart of my desires and my expectations and my rights, instead of fighting for that, I communicate, hey, church, I know you like Whataburger, and I don't understand why, but the last time I went to Whataburger... Uh, what a horrible burger, I'm sorry. Last time I went to that place, my hamburger was cold, my french fries were undercooked, my Diet Coke was watery, and it made me sick. 
Now, again, you still hear sarcasm, don't you? Because my wife says I have the gift of sarcasm. So let me try that again. Hey, church, okay, do you forgive me? Okay, thank you. Hey, church, you know what? Last time I went to Whataburger, I had a really tough time, and the food kind of made me a little bit ill. Do you think we could go to McKenzie's or somewhere else? How was that? Was that better? You know, give them an eight, seven. I feel like I'm in the Olympics. What am I doing? Is it wrong to communicate? I have different desires than you. Is it wrong for me to do that? When does it become wrong? I'll tell you when it becomes wrong. When I go to to Whataburger, complaining and criticizing the whole time, I give in to you. Okay, fine, I'll serve you. Stupid hamburger. It doesn't even taste like jalapeno bacon. McKenzie says jalapeno bacon is so much better. The whole time I'm criticizing, I'm mumbling. What's coming out of my heart? Just gushing, criticism, complaint, pride. Or if I fight, no, you're wrong. And we are never going to water horrible burger. Never. Again, that's pride. But humility communicates those truths. Again, Ephesians 4.25 commands us to consistently speak truthfully with one another. And as biblical communication takes place, if we don't agree, if we still communicate, and again, husbands, wives, when you talk and communicate desires, does that always instantly solve your conflict? You're looking at me like you're not sure how to answer that. What, is it just my house? Half the time, I don't even feel like I'm speaking the same language as my wife. She's like, well, you talk like a man. You think like a man. I go, yeah, I'm Texan. 100% man. She's like, I wouldn't be proud about that. So what do we do? We communicate lovingly, graciously, patiently, and we still can't resolve that conflict. Well, what does the Word of God tell me to do? To give my desires to God. So you see on the screen, I'm giving my desires to God. I tried to communicate them. We still didn't come to resolution. I'm going to give those to God. My expectations, my rights, my reputation. So I communicate them to each other, but at the end, I give them to God. It, It means we have to trust God for these things. Our desires may never get met. We can trust God, though to give us what we need when we need it. So what does Christ-like humility look like in our life? As we give these desires to the Lord, it means giving preference to one another in honor, Romans 12.10. I'm preferring you in honor. It means serving one another in love, Galatians 5.13. It means seeking always to build others up, Ephesians 4.29. I'm not letting any unwholesome speech come out of my mouth, but only that which is going to build you up and give you grace for your time of need. It means being gentle and patient and forgiving with others. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. It means seeing ourselves as no better than others. Romans 12, 16. And so I can communicate my desire to go to McKenzie's and you may still have your desire to go to Waterburger. But if we don't come to an agreement, at the end of the day, what do I do with that desire? Based on all of those verses, I give it to God. Lord, it's yours. Okay, honey. We'll do what you want to do. Okay, Jonathan, we'll go to IHOP. I mean, IHOP wasn't even on my radar. We'll go to IHOP. We actually went to IHOP a couple weeks ago. It was nice. So what happens when you sit in the front row, buddy. Again, I'm not communicating to manipulate. I'm not 
communicating to win an argument. I'm not communicating to prove I'm right. I'm not communicating to prove how much better my logic is than yours. I'm communicating truthfully to try to resolve conflict. But at the end of the day, if we can't resolve it, I'm giving it to the Lord. How do I know if my desire has turned into the sinful desire? I'm unwilling to give it up. I have to go to McKinsey's or I complain. Again, it's an idol of the heart if we're willing to sin to get it or if we sin if we don't get it. Turn with me to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself, than herself. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you realize if we consistently apply this verse when we're trying to resolve conflict biblically, how much conflict and pain and sorrow that sin brings into our marriage, in our family, in our work, on the mean streets of Houston or Montgomery? We would avoid that if we just practically applied this passage of not only looking out for my own interests, I'm going to look out for you. Because, wait, what am I? God's first. You're what? Second. And what am I? Third. That's how someone who's in third responds. God is first. What he says goes first. And then what you want, yeah, as long as you aren't telling me to sin, yes, we'll do it your way. Because I'm considering putting you above myself. But Lord, my, my husband isn't listening to me. He doesn't hear me. My child isn't repentant. My boss isn't fair. My wife isn't changing. And so on and so on and so forth. Is it wrong to keep praying those things? Is it wrong to try to work on some of those things? No. But if pride is motivating you to demand those things, you get angry when you don't get it, or you sin to get it, that's a clear indication that pride is at work and is the foundation of those desires. And James 4, 6 reveals God's response to this type of selfless humility because what has happened God gives grace to the humble. So instead of opposing us now from God, He's giving grace to the humble. There's growth, there's ministry, resolution and peace. You like that, uh, that flower? I call that my peace flower. You got the two people there resolving conflict. And at the end of the day, God is glorified when we choose to serve the other person in loving humility. And again, communication is taking place through this whole time as we seek to resolve this conflict. But at the end of the day, I'm giving these desires to God, trusting Him. Well, this morning we've received, reviewed, two ways to handle conflict. And as Christians, we should be motivated to see Christ glorified in every part of our life. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, 15 states, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And again, the peace of Christ should characterize our life. See, the cure for conflict is to repent of our pride and replace it with Christ-like humility. And with a humble heart, to communicate biblically and lovingly according to biblical principles, all the while holding those desires and those wants with an open hand, saying, God, you may choose never to grant me these, and that's okay, because if I don't have that, but I have you, and you're enough. Amen? You are enough. 
Think back to the last time you had conflict. Can you remember what you were thinking, what motivated you? What did you say? What were you fighting for? Why did you get upset? What got you angry or frustrated? Because if we look carefully, if we search our hearts, it doesn't take long to find pride. And you can't change the other person, can you? Anyone found success in changing your spouse or your coworker or, you know, if only there was a key to put into my husband and just flip it. That doesn't work. But who can you work on? Who can you bring about change? You. Next time you're tempted to go to war to get what you want, remember two things. Remember the consequence. If you go to war in pride, fighting for what you want, God will oppose you. You will lose. You won't get what you really wanted in the first place. God is opposing you. You're not going to be happy. And that sin might bring pleasure for a time, but it's always short-lived because the wages of sin is death. Remember the consequence. There is consequence, and your pride doesn't only affect you. It affects everyone around you. But not only that, secondly, maybe even more importantly, remember the cross. Remember the cross. When you're tempted to go to fight for something that you really, really want or desire, remember the cross. The cross represents the greatest act of selfless love that we have ever seen. Christ didn't come to earth so that he could put his own desires above everyone else. Whose desires did he come to earth for? Again, he clearly communicated this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thy will be done, not mine. The will of the Father. He came in full submission to God's will, even though it would mean a horrible death, an unjust and painful end to his life. But he did it because he loved God and he loved us. So let us be men and women who are characterized by peace and who are motivated to resolve conflict God's way. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. And Lord, these passages are easy to preach. They're easy to see even with the pictures and the illustration of how to apply it, Lord God. But we do need grace and help to appropriate what we have in Christ, to do it on a consistent basis, Lord. It never ceases to amaze me how much pride is still in my heart. And so, Lord God, I pray because of your love for me, to your glory, that you would help me to see the pride that is still in me, that you would give me grace to repent of it and hate it like you hate it, to put it off and to replace it with the humility of Christ. Help us as your church to be those kind of men and women that the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts. That we would be a place filled with peace and harmony because we have one mind, one heart, one love, one Lord. We ask these things that you would be glorified in and through us. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.